Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, October 15th, 2019, and I'm your host, Ariel Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. Our alumni-only Starseed Quest to Arkansas is coming up November 15th for Pleiadian Lineup, and we've just had three spots open up. So if you have attended a previous quest and thought you might have missed out on this one, you can still get your name on one of those spots. So please write us at crystals, that's plural, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-S, at starseedhotline.com as soon as possible to let us know you'd like to attend. Our special guest tonight is Reverend Dr. Stephanie Redfeather, who is a divine feminine change agent and champion of empaths, author of The Evolutionary Empath, a practical guide for heart-centered consciousness. Her passion is to help fellow empaths embrace their soul's calling to evolve humanity to the next level of consciousness. Stephanie is the founder of Blue Star Temple, A prolific creator of products and programs, she provides tools, inspiration, and understanding for those on the path of evolving consciousness. Her specialties include embodiment, masculine-feminine balance, boundaries, energy hygiene, shadow work, radical self-care, and inner authority. Stephanie's motivation comes from the difficulty experienced navigating her own spiritual awakening after leaving a 10-year career in the Air Force. This time in the crucible activated a deep desire to support others in making similar life changes. She's been serving as a spiritual teacher, healer, and guide for over 12 years. And Stephanie has long worked in the realms of subtle energy. She holds both a master's and doctorate in shamanic studies from Venus Rising University. In addition, she has attained certifications in a variety of energy healing and psycho-spiritual modalities. Stephanie is a Mesa carrier in the Pachacuti Mesa tradition of Peru, having studied with Don Oscar Miro Quesada and his lineage since 2005. You can learn more at her website, which is bluestartemple.org. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And we'd like to thank our producers, Kathy, Jada, and Fiona, for hosting the switchboard tonight for those who may have a question or comment for our guest. We have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other Starseeds thanks to Tammy's helpful dedication. You can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk. And if you'd like to show your support of our program, please just click follow on our page here, and you'll get our weekly show notices if you enable those. Our main website is starseedhotline.com. The Stage 1 Starseed Confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings in your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. 
And due to a huge increase in requests for readings, there is now up to a 16-week wait for the Stage 1s. Lavendar is booking February now and asks that her repeat clients book at least six months ahead, especially for your solar return. Every time someone with a YouTube following recommends us, her waiting lists grow, so your understanding is greatly appreciated. Now, if you have a birthday coming up, you don't have to miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. That only takes a few days. But remember, if you want the Stage 2 interpretation of that chart, you'll need to order it at least six months ahead of time to make sure you get it in before your 10 hours because our waiting lists are overflowing. This is a wonderful thing, though, because it shows an ever-increasing number of starseeds waking up and joining a much larger community of light that covers the globe. So first up this evening, I would like to introduce Anastasia with her wonderful, fabulous starseed news from Anastasia. Good evening, Ariel. It's great to be with you. Can you hear me? I have a connection problem. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Okay, great. Well, at the very last minute, a minute before 7, my wires got... (laughs) I don't know what happened. I was going to ask you if Mercury's retrograde, but I'm pretty sure it's not. No, not Anyway, we we may do, so I hope that this works. It does. Okay, well, we've got something very interesting going on in the skies. They found some more moons. Uh, around Saturn. A team led by Carnegie has found 20 brand new moons orbiting Saturn. Well, they, the moons aren't brand new, but the discovery is. This <laughs> brings the, uh, the ringed planet's total number of moons to 82, surpassing Jupiter, which only has a mere 79. Can you imagine being on a nearby uh, planet and looking at where you could really see 82 moons in your sky? Wow. wow. That's just so mysterious, yeah. And, you know, we're having some pretty early cold weather. I brought that up last week. But a late September snowstorm buried parts of the far northern Rockies in about four feet of snow. And last week's storm dumped up to 30 inches of snow and brought blizzard conditions to parts of North Dakota. Now, we're just three weeks into autumn. And this pair of unusually strong uh, early season snowstorms has delivered the snowiest start to the season on record to parts of the northern Rockies and northern plains. On record. Early start, lots of snow, and we're not anywhere near winter yet. In Pakistan, they have a problem with bugs. Swarms of locusts are coming in from India, and they are playing havoc with standing crops in Pakistan. They're gobbling up plants, grass, and shrubs, taking uh, all the greenery out of the villages. And guess what local farmers are trying to do? They're trying to chase away the locusts by beating tin cans. Really? (laughs) Uh, That's pretty primitive. I'm, I'm glad they don't use bug killer, but, wow, in this day and age, they're beating pots and pans to try to get rid of the locusts. It's kind of a losing battle for them under that circumstance, but that's what they're doing. And in Japan, I'm sure you've heard of this. I realize this made mainstream news today, but I'd already prepared it for tonight, so I'm going to share it with you anyway. Uh, There's been a typhoon in Japan uh, called Hajibus, and as far as the rescue goes, there are more than 110,000 people 
that are searching for victims of this uh, typhoon. Can you imagine a search force of 110,000 people? Now, this typhoon is the worst storm to hit Japan in over 60 years. At last count, as of yesterday anyway, 37 were dead, 20 were missing, and rescuers are working frantically to reach the people that are trapped by the landslides and the floods. Now, for several hours, typhoon rains drenched this very densely populated area, and tens of millions of people were trapped inside, and they were worried as they saw the rivers fill up and overflow. The government sent out high-level alarms telling people at first to get out, and then later they just said, do whatever you can to save your life. And in the midst of the storm, guess what? They had a magnitude 5.3 earthquake that struck off the coast, coast of Tokyo, shaking buildings in the capital, which was already being inundated by a typhoon. Hmm. Now, surprisingly, in, in, in uh, Tokyo, with respect to the earthquake, it didn't cause any damage or casualties, which is a good thing because the flood was really doing a number on them. So, wow. Oh. Earthquake and a typhoon all at the same time. Well, uh, this is uh, regarding crops and crop loss and food. Uh, China's been experiencing devastating crop losses, and that's becoming very apparent, and actually the United States isn't much better off. China has indicated that they are strained and under pressure with their concerns about having an available amount of food for their burgeoning population. Pork imports are up seven times over the last month because they don't have pork to feed their people. And to top it off, general food inflation is at 45%. And now the biggest news of all is that the corn auctions to China have stopped. The last four years averaged 100 million tons per year of corn. This year it was 22 million, and no more is going to be sold. Add to that, the historic unfavorable weather in the United States and Canadian grow zones means the largest food producers on the planet are having some distress. The weather is affecting food production. Well, I happen to love seagulls. I always have. And this is a sad story, but I have to pass it on. On Anna Maria Island in Florida, they have had sick uh, gulls, seagulls called laughing gulls. And over the past week, a bunch of them were found dead on, on beaches in Siesta and Lido Keys in Sarasota County. An additional 30 were reported sick. Uh, there's just dead birds everywhere, and um, they don't know what's going on. Uh, They've turned him into a rehabilitation facility, and the owner of that facility said, we've been doing this for 32 years at the animal center, and we've never seen anything like this before. So they don't know what's happening to the gulls. So, oh, boy. Well, East Siberia, East Siberia, this is wild. Um, You think of an ocean as being sort of a, I don't know, a tranquil place. Well, scientists have been busy studying the consequences of methane emissions from underwater permafrost in the Arctic Ocean. And now they've announced this week that they found a 50-foot square area in the East Siberian Sea that's boiling with methane bubbles. Methane in the sea. Now, you know, this is an indicator of many things. Some people say it could be just uh, uh, melting permafrost. 
Um, but other people say it could be, and this is not the only place this is happening on the planet, it could be created by underground volcanic activity. And some people say that the booming that we hear underground and the reports of shaking that has no known cause could be caused by methane underground because it's highly explosive. Anyway, uh, we shall see. Uh, nobody knows yet what that is, but there is uh, ocean in, it's not a very big spot, but nevertheless, it is boiling with methane in East Siberia. Well, new microbial research at the Department of Biology with some university, actually it's the University of Copenhagen, reveals that bacteria would rather unite against external threats, such as antibiotics, for instance, rather than fight against each other. This report has just been published in the scientific publication ISME Journal. And for a number of years, the researchers have studied how combinations of bacteria behave together when they're put in a tight spot, a confined area. And after investigating many thousands of cultures, it has become clear to these researchers that bacteria will cooperate in order to survive, and that this is a fact that contradicts Darwin's theory of survival of the fittest and the assumption of non-cooperative solitary survivorship. For instance, germs don't just say to each other, oh, it's each germ for himself. No, they don't do that. Because in the classic uh, Darwinian mindset, competition is the name of the game. But when it comes to bacteria, scientific findings reveal the most cooperative ones are the ones that survive. Bacteria that stand together, survive together. So that is something for science to know as they move forward and try to find uh, protection for infections and stuff caused by bacteria. They are discovering just how intelligent, how immensely intelligent, and how immensely complex uh, bacteria are. Uh, what an amount of intelligence and awareness that these little tiny critters have. Um, NASA wow. has finally done something it said it wanted to do for quite a while. While NASA is talking a lot about long trip, uh, long-term missions uh, like new trips to the moon and maybe human voyages to Mars, but its latest mission is closer to home. The, what they have something called the Ionospheric Connection Explorer, or ICON spacecraft, and it's finally in orbit after years and years of delays. Now, this probe orbits lower than many satellites because it is analyzing the ionosphere, the part of the atmosphere that is both fascinating and tough to study. The ionosphere is the uppermost section of the atmosphere that contains both the exosphere and the thermosphere, and it's called the ionosphere because it's the part that's ionized. It plays an important role in radial signal propagation electrical activity in the lower atmosphere, such as lightning, and even how Earth responds to solar weather. They say that we can't study it well from the ground, and most spacecraft is too high to get a look, good look at it, and so they launched this probe so that they can take a look at the ionosphere and study it and figure out what's going on up there. It orbits at 360 miles up into the sky. And on the hmm. galaxy front, yeah, on the galaxy front, they have discovered, this is weird, it's wonderful, it's mysterious, two giant blobs at the core of our galaxy. In uh, 2010, this was way back when, I don't know why they're just publishing it now, but this really came out of live science uh, just late last week. 
In 2010, astronomers working with the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope announced the discovery of two giant blobs. These blobs were centered at the core of the Milky Way galaxy, but they extend above and below the plane of our galactic home for 25,000 light years. They're big, and their origins are a mystery. But however they got there, they are emitting tremendous, a tremendous amounts of high-energy radiation. And more recently, this ice cube array in Antarctica, that's another uh, telescope system, has reported 10 super-duper high-energy neutrinos sourced from these bubbles. It's putting out some strange stuff, both of them. And they're kind of like a mirror image of each other if you look at the diagrams on the net. It's, it's mirrored, both of them. They mirror each other on each side of the center of the galaxy. Anyway, this leads some astrophysicists to speculate that there are some crazy subatomic interactions going on. They don't know what it is. In short, we still don't know what the bubbles are or what made the bubbles in the first place, but we know that we need to keep an eye on them because something is afoot. Crazy subatomic interactions. We're learning as we go. Hmm. Uh, let's, let's talk about some cool inventions. Um, this is about the future and maybe what might happen uh, as we become more ecologically minded. A company has come up with a way to build 3D printed using a 3D printer to make houses out of hemp. That's so cool. You ought to see the pictures on the Internet. It's amazing. They're really cute. They look like hobbit houses, kind of, sort of. They're really far out. They tell us that more architects and builders are turning to hemp as a sustainable material to use when building homes, as with 3D printing technology using that. Hemp is going to become even more of a reliable alternative to traditional materials because they are not environmentally friendly and they're now in very short supply. So they are finding a way to use hemp leftovers, chaff, and so on. Now, an Australian-based biotech company called Mareco recently unveiled plans for these 3D-printed hemp homes. The company cites environmental concerns as some of their primary motivations. Now, they've developed these hemp panels that can be used in both residential and commercial building projects. And the, the panels can also be manufactured directly through a 3D printer and then build the, the structure of the house. I, if you're interested in this, uh, Google uh, 3D printed uh, hemp houses and check it out. It's, I've always liked straw bale houses and things like that. This is, this is really cute. And, and what a great creative way uh, to uh, protect our environment. Um, anyway, you might want to look it up. And on Mars, let's go back to space again for a minute. On its uh, latest trek through the Gale crater on Mars, the Curiosity rover has discovered evidence that's leading scientists to believe that there was an oasis at the base of that wide crater a long time ago, an oasis on Mars. Curiosity scientists have described the scene in an article that they wrote in Nature Geoscience and researchers that analyze the data from the rover are uh, taking the data uh, and examining it, and they're saying that there are uh, evidence of briny ponds that went uh, through periods of drying out and overflowing on Mars. There are salt deposits that make them think that this was a place with salt water. Uh, They say that these deposits serve as a water mark, 
made by climate fluctuations as Mars climate changed from a wet one to the frigid ice desert that it is today. So one time, Mars had water. They think it had trees, oases, probably plenty of life. And the more they study it, the more they're learning. And, you know, when I was a kid, I thought there were people on Mars. And, hey, I think there used to be people on Mars, and maybe there's even (laughs) people on Mars now that we don't know about. Um, A very important thing has happened in in, uh, physics. Um, It has metaphysical implications. So I'm just going to share this article with you and let you leave you to your own imaginations. This comes from Live Science. Um, They say that giant molecules can be in two places at once. Now, that may not mean something to some of you. And to others, you may go, what? So here it is. Um, They tell us that that's something that scientists have long known. It's theoretically true, based on a few facts, that every particle or group of particles in the universe is also a wave. Even large particles, even bacteria, even human beings, even planets and stars are all particles and waves. And waves occupy multiple places in space at once. So any chunk of matter can also occupy two places at once. Ever hear of the masters bilocating? Yeah, you have. Physicists call this phenomenon quantum superposition. And for decades, they've demonstrated it using small particles. But in recent years, physicists have scaled up their experiments, demonstrating quantum superposition using larger and larger particles. And now... In a paper just published late in September in the journal Nature Physics, an international team of researchers has caused molecules made up of 2,000 atoms to occupy two places at the same time. That's right. The molecules were occupying multiple points in space at once. Now, metaphysically speaking, to those of our uh, mindset, we're not at all surprised. In fact, we can tell you that everything is present everywhere all at once. But this is scientists' way of proving it in a lab, and what do you know? They did it. It's really very significant. Well, um, you guys get headaches. Some of you get headaches. Some of you feel like you've gotten a little bit toxic. You know, our brains are affected more than we might think by toxins. Our brains are washed by a constant flow of cerebrospinal fluid, which, of course, plays the important role of carrying away waste substances such as harmful proteins and even excess water. Now, the rhythm of your heart is one of the factors that affects how well your cerebrospinal fluid flows through your brain. But now, a new study shows that breathing also affects how well your spinal fluid flows. Yoga breathing techniques can affect the flow of cerebrospinal fluid and promote the removal of brain wastes, according to a researcher. The study was published in the journal Nature Scientific, and you know, that is also important information. Um, That has a lot of implications. So deep breathing, everybody. Deep breathing, slow breathing, meditative breathing. It's a wonderful thing for your health in more ways than one. It's good for your brain. And finally, tonight, moving right along, we have a a cattle mutilation story from Oregon. 
there has been a mysterious rash of cattle mutilations in Oregon, and most recently, five young purebred bulls mysteriously showed up dread, uh, dead excuse me, on an Oregon ranch. And sadly, they were drained of blood, and some of their body parts were precisely removed. Now, Harney County's sheriff's, uh, sheriff's deputy has been working the cattle cases and has gotten dozens of calls from all over offering tips and suggestions. The sheriff says that a lot of people lean toward the aliens. One caller had told us to look for basically a depression under the carcass because he said that the alien ships will beam the cow up and do whatever they're going to do with it, and then they just drop them from a great height. He said, well, the cases have been tough with the evidence not much, no credible leads, but what's clear, it isn't bears, it isn't wolves, it isn't cougars, and it's certainly not poisonous plants. Nor were the animals shot, nor were their footprints, or any indication of a human predator. The FBI will not confirm or deny that it's looking into the multiple slaughters. There have been other similar reports on other ranches in the region in recent years. The Harney County Sheriff's Office continues to field calls on the killings and the ranch has put up a $25,000 reward for information that could solve this case. So those things are still happening out there. After all these years, it still continues. All right. Well, here's a lovely quote by Helen Keller. You know, Helen Keller, the blind lady, she said that your success and happiness lies in you. Resolve to keep happy and your joy and you shall have the ability to form an invincible host against difficulties. Stay happy and you will be able to, in other words, overcome what any difficulties you have. Don't let it get you down. Don't let it get you discouraged. You decide whether you're happy or whether you're successful. Don't wait for the outside world to tell you and don't wait for outside circumstances to make it so. You make it so. And then you'll survive anything and everything. And that comes from someone who had been through unimaginable things. So she ought to know. And actually, it's very good advice. It works. It does. <laughs> so from my heart to each one of you, uh, have a beautiful week, everybody. And I hope to get my wires uncrossed by next week. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you did fine um, and got, got the job done. So we so appreciate your Starseed News. Thank you. Good night. Good night. We'll see you next week. Okay, so I'm going to get um, Lavendar's mic open, and our guest, Stephanie Redfeather, just let me wait till these things stop spinning. Okay, ladies, Stephanie, welcome to the show. We're so happy that you're here with us. Thank you so much. And Lavendar, um, are you ready to go? I'm, I'm here and I'm ready. Okay, <laughs> everything's working. We love that. <laughs> Take it away. Okay. Well, Stephanie, I really am um, honored to have you as our guest tonight, and you've written a wonderful book called The Evolutionary Empath. So why don't you start by giving us a little history about yourself and telling us how you came to know about empathy. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Well, I've been an empath my whole life, but for the first 30 years, I didn't know it. So... um, You know, as a child, I was very creative and intuitive. I went to a performing arts school, kind of like the TV show Fame, if anybody remembers that. 
So in addition to history and math and science, I was taking dance class and then theater and I was in a dance company with the city and uh, just loved all that creative expression. Um, you know, my mom told me that from a very early age, I could always tell if somebody was upset or not feeling well. And she said that I would crawl up into their lap or do something to, to try to make them feel better, you know, long before I had language and all of those sorts of things. And, you know, that behavior continued, oh, not the crawling into everybody's laps, but, you know, the, the feeling into everybody's emotions and sensing um, what their kind of emotional and energetic state was. What's interesting is that my young life took uh, a serious 90 degree turn um, for a lot of reasons, but essentially as, as my young teenage self started uh, interacting with the world, she didn't feel safe. And the way I've described it is my, my masculine side came in and said, I'll save you and put her in a box and put her away for safekeeping. And so there's, you could, if you kind of track my high school years, you, you can chart how the feminine expression, the creativity, the intuition, all of those things charted downward and all of the masculine qualities charted upwards. And when it became time for me to make a decision about what I wanted to do with my life, I got a math degree and went into the Air Force. So <laughs> I was an Air Force officer for 10 years. Uh, so imagine being an empath, a, a, an unconscious empath, not knowing that I was one um, with all of those influences. It's very, very interesting. Um, so basically when I left the Air Force, made the decision to leave, um, that is what really started what I call my spiritual awakening. And in that time, I came to understand that I was sensitive, um, didn't really have the term empath yet until a number of years later, but uh, there are parallel journeys, my spiritual awakening, my reclamation of my own feminine self, my understanding of myself as an empath, all of those things progressed together simultaneously. And so um, this book, it's kind of like how my business was born. When I stepped out of what I call the spiritual crucible, you know, that time where you're just in it, getting cooked down and cooked down and, and wondering if you're, if you're ever going to survive the pressure, um, you know, so that was kind of what my spiritual awakening years were like, was just who am I? What do I want? What's important to me? Redefining everything, like nothing on the on the end of my spiritual crucible time looked like it did when I entered the crucible. I mean, I just went through a huge transformation. But when I stumbled out of the spiritual crucible and sort of wiped my forehead and looked around and went, whoo, okay, I'm still here, I'm alive, <laughs> I felt like I had gained wisdom, that I had gained perspective, that I had gold nuggets and tools and understanding that I could share with other people. And so that is how my business was born. And the book is just another arm of that, of being an empath my whole life and not knowing it. So coming from a place of feeling everybody else's stuff, thinking everything I felt was my own, having no idea 
how to say no or draw boundaries. I did not know where I ended and other people began. I had no sense of myself, no ability to stay in my center. And so I spent a lot of time and effort establishing those things and energy hygiene, clearing practices and self-care and all of those things. And so this book was, was just born from wanting to share all of that because you know, there's not a lot of information out there yet for empaths. There's a lot of other subjects where you can find a lot of resources. But I want other people's journey to be easier than mine was. I want people to have tools and understanding and perspective that I didn't have. Wow. I, I totally uh, understand where you're coming from. Uh, my question to you is, did did most of this happen after 2012? Um, my spiritual awakening, I call it the pre-quake tremors, actually happened around 2000. Okay. And then around 2002 is when the, the spiritual crucible years kind of began in earnest, where it was almost a five-year period of time where I feel like I lived about 100 years just moving through so much stuff. Yeah. I was just curious because I'm finding a lot of people that are awakened and stepping into their power and talking about empathic subjects. A lot of it happened after 2012, and that's the reason I, I asked you about that date. I just mm -hmm. wondered if that was part of uh, something that you could identify with where you are now. So can you give us some examples of maybe some clients that you've had that have come to you that wanted to uh, explore uh, their empath abilities and give us a, a little uh, storyline, if you would, about anything yeah. or anyone that can you can you don't have to name them, but just give us a, a a brief sketch of how that has impacted their lives with you. Certainly, uh, I have one long-term client that was severely agoraphobic, just could barely manage being out in public, just so sensitive and really had practically no skills for managing that. And I've been working with him now for, gosh, probably something like 10 years maybe. Uh, and he has come so far. So we've done all kinds of things because I, in my practice, I have a lot of tools. So I do energy healing. I do a lot of shamanic techniques, a lot of psycho-spiritual stuff, but I also provide a lot of tools. And so we really worked on him becoming aware of his energy container, first of all, recognizing himself as an energetic being and getting a sense for his own sovereign space so that he could first begin to notice, oh, gosh, look, I, my, my energy boundaries are completely non-existent. Where did they go? Let me erect them. <laughs> you know, because for a lot of empaths, it's so much easier for us to blend and merge with other people. It's a lot harder to maintain our own sovereign space. So developing the ability to actually hold a container for himself, to hold space for his own self. And then once that was established, to learn to check in with it and go, okay, what people, what circumstances, what triggers obliterate my boundaries? You know, what makes me feel strong and powerful and solid and what fills my container full of holes? 
and then going in and doing practices to manage that, to look at leaks. How am I leaking energy out? How am I allowing other people's energy to leak into my space? And how is that affecting me? We've worked with a lot of energy hygiene practices, just energy clearing, how to clear your field, how to be responsible for that, you know, your sovereign container, your sovereign bubble. Um, prioritizing self-care. Some of the, the major tools that I work with a lot of empaths on, I, it's all under the category of boundaries, is quite often we really suck at saying no, <laughs> at asking for what we need, at, at even recognizing what it is we need in the first place because we tend to be so other-oriented. And so I, I helped give him languaging and would run him through scenarios like, okay, you know, when you go to a social gathering with your friends and this anxiety comes up or this trigger comes up for you, here are some suggestions. Let's practice that. What would you say? What would you do? You know, instead of just turning tail and running out, can you just step outside for a minute? Can you go to your car and breathe? You know, what are, what are some of the different things you can do? So just spend a lot of time working on just real life practical tools so that he could learn to be in the presence of other people and not just completely get taken out. And now he's, um, I don't know, it's an assistant manager or something like that at a grocery store. So he's dealing with people all day long, you know, people coming down the aisle and buying, you know, stuff down the conveyor belt and dealing with all manner of humanity through all range of moods and is thriving. So I wanted to ask you if, if you've had the occasion to find uh, empaths that are triggered by taste or by smell. Has that come um, up for you? If somebody it, it, smells a, a a scent and it would set them off and, and receiving way way too much information from somebody? Um, I I consider those to be you know, like in terms of clairvoyance, clairsentience, clairaudience, claircognizance, you know, like all the different senses. Um everybody has kind of their what do I want to say, their their go-to, the one that's naturally developed for them. Um, I don't have as many people that have had triggers with smell or sound, but it does exist. I, I have worked with that to a smaller degree um, because, it, you know, we are taking in input, stimuli, information into our energy fields. And for some people, one of their major ways of taking in information is through smell or through sound. And so there are, you know, if somebody was trying to manage that, it's, you know, it's a little bit of a general concept to kind of give you specific things that I would do, but um, those things can be worked with for sure. Right. Are you finding um, that you have more clients coming to you that are awake now? People that are really, um, I'm finding a lot of star seeds that woke up after 2012 that mm -hmm. are, some people are waking up and going, okay, I don't want to be married anymore. Okay, I want to move. I want to I, I want to step away from my job and do something 180 from what I was doing. Are you finding this is a, a, a trend with some of the um, uh, more awake uh, impasse that's coming across your life? Yes, yes. And it's, 
um, I'm grateful for that too, because one of the things that I found, and I, and I was happy to do it because it also helped me develop, is um, in the beginning, I was kind of repeating myself a lot, like having to explain concepts to people, like this is why this is happening. This is, this is what you're experiencing, and here's what's happening energetically that's causing that dynamic. You know, so there, there was a lot of educating, if you will that was happening with earlier clients and now I'm seeing that there's a, a more of a level of awareness or understanding of things compared to 10 or 15 years ago even. Yeah, I'm really I'm, everything seems to be speeded up is what I'm I'm noticing. Mhm, for sure. At, at at every level. In your book you talk about humanity is in a cycle of ascension. And a lot, of, a lot of people might say that we're regressing into anger and hate and war and violence and conflict. And what do you mean by this exactly? And what is your evidence mm -hmm. of this phase? Yes. Um, those, are, those are big questions that could take a lot of time to answer, so I'll, I'll summarize. Um, there are over 30 ancient cultures, ancient civilizations that have tracked a particular kind of cosmic or celestial phenomenon called the precession of the equinoxes. So I'm going to try not to get too scientific here, but it's a term most commonly referred to as the great year. And depending on what source you go to, it's either a 24,000 year cycle or a 26,000 year cycle. And uh, if you're familiar with the Greek ages, so the, the Iron Age, Bronze Age, Silver Age, Golden Age, or if you're familiar with the Indian Yugas, the Treta Yuga, Satya Yuga, etc. Those are chunks, if you will, of the Great Year. They're, they're components of the Great Year. And so what it basically refers to is, I'm going to use 24,000 years as my reference, that for 12,000 years, humanity is ascending in consciousness and awareness. And for 12,000 years, humanity is descending in consciousness. And as we descend in consciousness, we, we kind of lower in vibration. We lose subtle um, wisdom and information and knowledge that was known to all in the heights of the golden ages, those things then start to get doubted, forgotten, people question them, and then we lose things we used to know. And, and one of those things that we've lost is um, specific calendars, if you will. So there, there are certain cultures, you know, sages, people that were that took it upon themselves or, or were sort of ordained with keeping track of this great year cycle. So depending on which source you quote, they're not all going to say we're exactly in the same place, but pretty much all of them agree that we are back in a cycle of ascension. And, and what I reference in my book is that we are actually out of the Iron Age, the, the lowest or darkest age, if you will, and that we are a few hundred years now into the Bronze Age. And I know you asked a lot of other questions, too, so just ask me where you want me to go next. <laughs> well, th yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, 
I've been tracking something very similar to what you're saying, and I'm finding that a lot of souls seem to be reincarnating back from a 12,000-year cycle from Atlantis because of the the technologies that we have now. It's like a a lot of Atlanteans are back to bring that technology, and, and of course, they're being given the opportunity to... um, have technologies in the up spiral and not so destructive to the people or the planet. Mm-hmm. So my next question to you is, as you are working with this empathic information, um, how do you incorporate what Wi-Fi and, and, and these technologies that we're dealing with now, do you see it as an enhancement or do you see it as something that's really destructive for a lot of empaths? The, the new technologies that are happening. I know that me personally, I have a lot of trouble with Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you talking about like empaths just struggling with the the concepts of technology, the use of no, it? No, I'm it talking about, you know, for instance, for instance, you know, when you go into town and, you know, of course, when I travel, I try to put up a, a bubble around myself and, and keep all outside interference. But then sometimes when Wi-Fi hits me, mm-hmm. it kind of breaks my 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 stronghold. <laughs> you know, I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. it, it interferes, yeah. and then all of a sudden I'm all of a sudden a rush of stuff will be coming maybe from the person standing in front of me at the at the checkout counter. <laughs> mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Thank and, you. And um, and I know it's not mine. I know it's someone else's. Right. So I was just curious if if that's come up for you at all about the mm-hmm. technology, how they affect em- empathic people on the planet. Right. Thank you for clarifying your question. Um, I I kind of lump all of those things together in one sense, in that as we develop our energy hygiene practices, as we develop our boundaries and our self care, we have to be mindful of all of these different sources of stimuli or I I tend to stay away from negative energy but but things that are disharmonious or or would be of a lower vibration and harmful electromagnetic frequencies are certainly in that category for sure Um, one of the things I rely on a lot to help me with that at least around the house is the mineral kingdom Uh, I have pieces of pyrite Uh, next to my computer and printer and TV because that helps mitigate some of those frequencies. But but yes, that is a a real thing. It's a real phenomenon. And because there are more electronic signals and electromagnetic frequencies bouncing around and not all electromagnetic frequencies are harmful, but not all of them are useful. So, you know, you can't, can't just lump them all into one category and go, oh, they're all bad, it depends on, and that gets more granular than, than I know. I need a someone with an electrical engineering degree, but I, I do know that there are helpful frequencies and harmful frequencies. Um, and then I, I just remembered something else you asked that I wanted to, to share a perspective on where you talked about, you know, if, if we're in this ascending cycle, why does it seem like we're in this period of chaos? And one of the um, examples that I use in my book to kind of illustrate it uh, is when we move from one season to the next. So say, for example, when we move from winter into spring, 
every day is not necessarily warmer than the day before. You know, you can have a 60 degree day and then a 30 degree day, and then you might have a 45 degree day, you know, so it's going to bounce around. But in general, if you track it, if you graphed out the average, you know that the temperature is trending warmer when you go from winter to spring. It just doesn't always feel like that every single day. And that's the example I like to use to illustrate this period of ascending. It doesn't mean every day is going to be better or, you know, because we've got so much more time we're dealing with every day, every year, maybe even every decade. But in general, we are ascending. We are raising in frequency and you know, this may be more of a kind of a shamanic perspective, but the shadow can only remain hidden for so long, whether it's an individual shadow or a collective shadow. And so my view on part of what's happening and why things are so chaotic in particular is there's a lot of things that have been held in shadow and, and the change in frequency, if you will, of the planet, of, of human consciousness, the, the dissonance is getting vibrated up to the surface, up to the light, up to consciousness to be worked with. And it can feel and seem very chaotic. Don't you think that technology is moving that faster with, with social media and the way people are reacting to just everything? It, it does. It is very... Um, it, technology is a blessing and a curse, and I think it's that way with any new invention because we're, you know, it's kind of like little kids. We're excited. We have this new thing. We think it's helpful, but we don't know the long-term benefits and disadvantages. We haven't looked at the whole picture, and so technology is a blessing and a curse, I believe, just depending on your level of consciousness with it. Um and being mindful, I think, is one of the best practices of really making conscious decisions of how you're going to interact with technology. When, you know, is it serving you? Is it really making you more efficient? Or is it really making you feel more connected? Or is it just giving you the illusion? You know, like, I, I think consciousness practices around technology are what are really going to help people get that clarity about what's going to serve them and what's not. Right. So let's talk a little bit about personal relationships. Mm-hmm. How does being an empath affect your closest personal relationships? And can living with an empath be difficult? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll just be honest. <laughs> I, um, I lovingly embrace that I can be the princess in the pea. And bless my husband's heart, he understands it and he works with me. Um, what's most challenging is an unconscious empath. When, when somebody has those sensitivities and awarenesses and perceptions, but they don't know it. So they don't recognize maybe that they're codependent or that they're taking on other people's emotions or um, taking responsibility for things that aren't theirs or they don't know how to manage their own uh, energy field or they can't recognize, you know, when they've overstepped a boundary or, or whatever. So it can be challenging um, just depending on where the empath is and their level of consciousness and awareness. 
which really isn't much different than just two human beings, empath or not. You know, <laughs> the, the level of consciousness makes a huge difference in how to, to navigate those relationship challenges. So do you ever have um, uh, retreats or people that come and spend all day with you and say there's a room full of empaths? <laughs> do, you, do you experience a lot of group empath energy in your work? Um, I have workshops. I've held workshops for a long time. Um, most of them tend to be smaller numbers, and pretty much the feedback I get every time is, oh, thank God it's a small group because I wasn't sure if I could handle, you know, <laughs> if this was a large amount of people. Um, so especially if the focus uh, you know, the, the the title or the content of the workshop is related to being an empath or energy. I will start right out by just speaking to it and giving them an exercise or some tools to practice immediately so that they can sort of settle into their own sovereign space while they're in a group and, and start to establish a feeling of safety. That's something that's very important for me as a facilitator is holding that space for people and um, showing them how to hold that space for themselves. In your book, you mentioned that there's five distinct qualities of an empath. What are those five qualities? Yes. So it's interesting that when I sat down to write this book, my spirit guides only gave me one directive, and it was create a definition. <laughs> I was like, okay, sure, no pressure. <laughs> but... Um, it's not something I've seen done. I mean, you know, the standard shorthand is what's an empath. It's a highly sensitive person, but there's, there's so much more to it. And so I had for a long time lists of what I called empathic traits or, you know, experiences that people would have that were common. And I sat down with that list and it just started to organize itself into like items. And from that, I identified and plucked out what I call the five qualities of an empath. And so the first quality is our ability to merge with and absorb the energy of other beings, whether that's people or animals or anything with life force, which stems from our very open personal energy field. Um, the second quality is that we have a highly sensitive nervous system. The third quality is that we have great sensitivity to the energies around us and an ability to perceive or access subtle information stored in the energy fields of all types of life forms. And so this is the quality that, you know, makes it easy for us to um, tune into angels and have paranormal experiences and read Akashic records and talk to the dead and all of those sorts of things. Um, the fourth quality is the premium that we place on peace and harmony, and that is peace and harmony in our relationships, in our environment, and in our own energy fields. And the fifth quality is our big open hearts and a desire to serve others. Oh, that I really like those. That's really, I, I like everything you've said. It just makes a lot of sense. That's full circle. That's mm -hmm. full circle. Mm-hmm. In your first chapter, it, it, even titled "You Are Not Crazy," you talk <laughs> about unhealthy, unhealthy aspects of being an empath. Can you give an examples of struggles that an empath might have? Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, when we don't know we're an empath, 
then it then what it means is we're essentially born feeling everybody else's stuff and we think it's our own because we have no other experience to compare it to. We we have no other reference point to come in and say that's not actually um healthy if that's sustained, you know. So you know, that was a big one for me is I just felt you know, schizophrenic may be a little bit strong of a word, but God, I would have mood swings and emotional stuff or like reactions that were way stronger, you know, like not proportional to what was happening. Um, codependence is a big one um, because uh, one of our gifts is that we're able to blend and merge so easily with others. Then the corollary to that is it's much more challenging for us to know who we are and to stay in our own center. So codependence is a big one. Um, Cousins of those are um, feeling responsible for other people's stuff. So for feeling their emotions, we're feeling their pain, we're taking on their problems, and then we think their problems are ours to solve. So those are just a few examples. Um. What about when a person's not an empath? Um, Can you say a little more? (laughs) You know, like what, like how do we interact with them? How do we tell them about us? Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, When you're, say when you're an empath and another person isn't and they don't have Mm -hmm. the obvious clue of what you're dealing with. Right. Right. How do you explain it to a person that doesn't have the understanding of what an empath is? Yeah, yeah. I I tend to um, ask them, you know, have there ever been days where, like, your nervous system has just felt like you've got a hundred fingers plucking, <laughs> you know, your 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 nerves, or have you ever had a day where you've just been so overwhelmed that you just want to turn the world off or you can't think there's too much stimulus. Uh, You can't make decisions. Have you ever felt this? Have you ever felt that? You know, almost always any human being is going to have at least a day or or a handful of of times in their life where they can go, Oh yeah, I've, I've been there. And then I say, okay, now feel that every day. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that's kind yeah, of the simplest yeah. way to to offer that. Yeah. Well, I know that being an empath can be a curse or it can be a gift, depending on how educated you are on and knowing yourself. Mm-hmm. A person doesn't know themselves. That's why we um, focus on astrology, uh, teaching people how to uh, learn about, you know, your your masterships and things that you're having to learn in this lifetime. Once mm-hmm. you know who you are, then it's it's much simpler to be able to be of assistance to others, especially if you're dealing in an empathic world. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate you taking the time to write the book and for you mm-hmm. to come on the show and talk to us about this. And at this time, I'd like to pass you over to my co-host, Ariel, who has okay. switched. So I really, uh, bravo, girl, for you mm-hmm. stepping forward and, and taking on this empath information because we star seeds, we really need this information coming forth at this time. So yeah, good for you, do. girl. Thank you okay. so much. Back to you, Ariel. Okay. Well, this has just been fascinating, Stephanie. 
And I mean, thinking as you're talking, it's like, yeah, I've I've worked with someone like that, and I didn't know what to tell them. Um, and are there actually uh, techniques? I mean, obviously, you've got a lot of uh, tricks and tools in your bag that that can help people, you know, in shielding um, or even realizing that they need to. Um, mm-hmm. That seems to be, the, you know, the the thing is, people, like you said, they they have those days when they're just overwhelmed, and and they think it's their, they think it's them. So then you start wondering what's wrong with you. So right. um, your mm-hmm. and your your book addresses those kind of situations and how to deal with it. Um, it it does. Yeah. The book is broken into two parts. Um, the second part I'll talk about first because that's the tool. That's how to draw boundaries and energetic hygiene and radical self-care and explaining concepts about the masculine and feminine and how those things play in uh, and, and actually giving examples and exercises. Plus there are eight guided meditations that I created to accompany this book so people can have you know, body felt, body wisdom experiences. So they so they don't just take it in cerebrally. They they learn it experientially. The first half of the book is more of the bigger picture context. Why we are here? Like we are not here randomly. We are here on purpose. I I have collectively called all of us who are incarnated right now the empathic big bang. Um, that, that we are here to start helping humanity ascend to the next level of consciousness. And so the first half of the book is the definition and the five qualities and breaking down the five qualities. And I also interviewed a lot of people. So I have real life stories from lots of people in here to give examples of these different things too. Well, that's wonderful. And I, I don't know that I've ever heard the term energy hygiene. Mm-hmm. Would you expound on that a little bit for me? Yes, yes. It's um, it's kind of like energetic self-care. It's like clearing practices. So if you like to use sage to smudge yourself, uh, if you like to do breathing and visualization exercises to clear your field, if you like to go in and do specific things with the chakras, whatever that is, energetic hygiene is, Um, I mean, honestly, as conscious beings, we are responsible for the energy that we carry into a space, into a relationship, into anything that we do. And so energetic hygiene is a form of self-care. It is managing our energy, checking in with ourselves and performing whatever tools or practices we need to do so that we can keep our energetic container solid and intact and that we can keep our vibration as high as possible and increase our level of stability, if you will. Okay. Well, that, yeah, that makes, that makes great sense. I mean, it's like energetically, if you didn't have those, those techniques to keep clearing and, um, um, rebalancing, it, it would be like walking around for days without a shower. Yes. And pretty soon people start to notice that there's something wrong with you. <laughs> you know? And I mean, and energetically, I mean, there could be, you know, if you've picked up some discordant energy from, mm-hmm. uh, from someplace. Um, I, I often tell the story uh, in my readings when I, when I see people that have a lot of water in their chart because it's very, water is very empathic. It it goes mm-hmm. to the shape of whatever container it's in, yep. so it, it's much more um, um, 
what is malleable. not flexible, but yeah, but it's it, malleable. And um, I remember years and years ago, um, I was I was going to go Christmas shopping, and I love Christmas, and I love you know the whole giving and 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 all that. But I went to the mall, and I was in a great mood, and I was there for a couple of hours, and when I came out, I was stressed. I was angry. I was sad. I mean, just everything. And then that's when I realized, it's like, wait a minute. I was perfectly fine when I went there. Uh-huh. So this is not my stuff. And uh-huh. that was like my first my first inkling, um, which I, I called energy cooties. <laughs> and like, yeah, you picked up energy cooties from, from all these, you know, stressed out people in retail American malls. Mm-hmm. Um and and then so then I had to learn some shielding techniques, and I'm, I'm sure that you've got several you, several that you've already mentioned to mm-hmm. to help people, and and certainly I mean, if someone didn't realize that you could um, you could catch a bad mood from someone else, um, if people didn't realize that, I I can't imagine how tough it would be just to just to continue day after mm-hmm. day. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And um do you work with all ages of people? Um I actually don't. I work with adults. Uh I don't have anything against children. That's just not my that's not where I shine. That's not my specialty. That's not where I feel most comfortable. So I do mostly work with adults and sometimes like older teenagers. Well, I'm just I'm just um was curious if um, there seems to be higher levels of of empathy empathy with uh, with the, with the new kids that are coming in because yeah. it seems like they've got they've got a lot um, more sensitivity mm-hmm. uh, and their DNA is is different so um, mm-hmm. that would be an interesting interesting study to uh, to see comparatively through the generations how it has been increasing and that yeah. kind of goes along with with the um, with the with the great year, um, you know the, the, mm-hmm. the great cycles, and um, yeah, I mean I've I mean, even if you just look at at uh, you know like YouTube videos, these kids are very precocious. They're they're like, you know, adults in little teeny tiny bodies talking to these little <laughs> kid voices. You know, and, I know, and I and, and I kind of go ahead. I was like, it's 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 heartwarming. It is. It is. And, and sometimes I laugh because um, I, I try not to be the resentful elder, but there are times when I, when I look at some of the younger ones and I'm like, God, you picked that up so fast. That's so not fair because it took me so many years to figure that out. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, and then your, your generation is obviously the, the way shower. So I mean, mm-hmm. the kids come in and they've got it, but if they didn't have someone to speak their language, they right. might not be so quick. Right. So you know, every generation hands off um, their experiences, and and the younger generations, if they're wise enough, will listen. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, it's like you know, there's there's no substitute for 20 years of experience. Um, 
but <laughs> that reminds yeah. me of something, something my dad said to my little brother when he was, you know, just getting out of high school. He said, he said to my brother, he says, you better go out and conquer the world now while you still know everything. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, as yeah. you get older, you realize that, oh, I, I thought I knew everything, and, and now I know that I knew nothing. Right, so, um, right. Well, yeah. one of the things, one of the things I talk about in the book is called um, the morphic field of the impact. And so that there's this living field of intelligence that um, is available for, it, it, it is both contributing to us as empaths and we are contributing to it. Um, so it's, it's kind of like this, I don't know, repository, if you will. And, there, and there's a morphic field to everything, um, every every you know, kind of thought or living thing or whatever has a morphic field to it, kind of a bigger living field of intelligence that holds the the coding uh, and the instructions and the wisdom and knowledge of that thing. And so I think that's part of it too, is that the, the morphic field of the empath is here growing and, and assisting those that are coming up behind us. Right, right, and and more and more parents, um, because I'll 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 do you know sessions or, or readings um, with the parent, and then it's like, oh, can you know, would you take a look at my child's chart? And the correlations are just stunning, and the, and the children obviously chose those parents to you know to get that particular um, you know DNA, the bloodline and all the codes and things that are carried within the blood and within the ancestral memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, yeah, and the, the, we all chose our parents. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> no matter yeah, how young you are, you have, to, you have to realize that. And, and sometimes we choose parents that need our help. And sometimes yes, we and, choose parents oh. that can help us. Yes, yes, and I so appreciate you saying that because that is something that was a big perspective shifter for me that I've shared with many clients and students is that have you considered, you know, if you feel like the black sheep of the family, the one that's always ostracized or the one that's going left when everybody's going right, maybe you're here to teach them. Right. You know. Right. Mm-hmm. And and you, I, mean, I tell people this um, on a somewhat regular basis, is that it's it's taking a wrong turn to resent someone who who doesn't get it, who doesn't have it, that um, hasn't learned it. Um, you know, you can't separate yourself and say, you know, I'm you know I'm better than you, I'm more smart than you, I'm whatever. You cannot go there um, because we are here as teachers and leaders and leading by example, um, mm-hmm. you know, walking your talk. That's, yeah. that's what we need to show the, you know, the generations coming up behind us. Mm-hmm. Because I, I mean, I, I remember when I was growing up, I thought that all the adults were nothing but hypocrites. Mm-hmm. They say one thing and do another thing. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, you know, it, it, that continues to um, to perpetuate as, um, you know, people get sucked into the matrix. 
mm-hmm. and and you know some people surrender and, and and give up their freedom and they give up their power and you know maybe the the younger children the starseed children the empathic children and that's it's almost almost one and the same i think it, it very often goes together it might you might be here to help heal that and aren't um most empaths healers in some um, way what I find is that predominantly, you know, that's the, the fifth quality where I talk about a big open heart and desire to be of service. You know, so many of us are, are called to be, you know, energy healers and massage therapists and nurses and hospice workers and, you know, some person in a, some kind of support role or artists or, you know, those sorts of things where we're just naturally predisposed to be tuned into others' needs. And so it makes us great at those types of professions. Right. But we still have to have boundaries. Because, um, you know, that's, it's so easy. Um, You know, when you're, when you're young, you can try to be everything to everybody and give every last everything you've got. But sooner or later, you're going to hit a wall and realize that now you're surrounded by, you know, parasitic kind of energy. And and then you start getting tired of, mm-hmm. of giving all the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. so you have, I, I think people must maintain a balance between mm-hmm. giving and receiving. And if you're always giving, and then, I mean, how many people, um, you know, when, when someone wants to give them something and it's like, oh, no, no, that's okay, you don't have to do that, you know, and, and they and they refuse. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's like, man, but you're okay with giving. Oh, yeah, giving. I love, love, you know, it makes me feel really good. It's like, well, did you ever stop to think that when someone wants to give you something and you say no thank you, you've just deprived them of the joy that mm-hmm. you like to get when you give. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, when I, I got a hold of that one, it's like, okay, anytime, no matter what, if something is offered, I receive it with, with grace and, and, and gratitude. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. You know, even if I turn around and give it to someone else. Um, it's still, you know, you can't de- deny someone the joy of feeling like I was, I was, I was good today. I did something good. It, you know, you feel your, your, your maybe your self worth um, makes you feel better. So, mm-hmm. you know, learning to receive is not, yeah. uh, it's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's not a selfish thing. Mm-hmm. It is, it is grace and, and compassion. Yes. And, and I, um, I also work with that concept from more of a divine feminine perspective as well, um, because of all the years that I've spent working with the masculine and feminine archetypes, um, that uh, receiving is actually the more natural state for the feminine. You know, the, the, if you boil down the feminine archetype to its essence, it's about beingness. It is, it is the receptivity pole. And in our highly patriarchal culture where all of the output is valued, we kind of have this double layering of it's better to give than receive. You should, you know, you should always be giving. It should always be output. It should always be, you know, and, and that is askew. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that, that's part of the, um, the repression of the feminine. Which is going mm-hmm. it's going on for thousands of years, and mm-hmm. that's part of the paradigm that needs to shift. Um, and I, 
I wonder, you know, how many empathic men were um, uh, curtail is the only word that was coming to brain to my mind, but um, quashed mm-hmm. as very young boys yeah. because they were sensitive and maybe they cried and you know and dad and mom is like, hey, big boys don't cry. Right. I mean, something as seemingly innocuous as that is mm-hmm. the beginning of that, that suppression of the feminine and the empathy within men. And we really need to nurture that as well as the strength and courage from the feminine to, you mm-hmm. know, to stay in balance. Yeah, I'm, I'm just sitting here shaking my head. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah. and, because it, and it's yeah. so much harder for men just because of the stereotypes and the expectations and the toxic masculinity. It's like if they show any sort of softness or gentleness or compassion or love or thoughtfulness it's like ah you was you that you know it's like wait yeah. this is all backwards yeah. this is not you know so I I mean my heart you know overwhelmingly my clients and students are women so whenever there are men I often make a point to, to say thank you <laughs> thank you for your courage and being here and stepping out and doing this work because I know how much harder it is for men right now on this planet to, to step up and, and acknowledge they're an empath and, and embrace that. Yeah. And even, I mean, even beyond empathy, you know, any kind of you know sensitivity or, or mm-hmm. intuition, psychic ability, that's, it's all mm-hmm. so closely knit. It's kind of hard to, to separate one from the other. But um, when I see people that have this, masculine feminine rebalancing um mission in their charts you know it's like you don't have to go out and and do something global you know when you're in the grocery store if you see a a man who's doing something um nurturing or or you know kind compassion just go up to him and say hey good work keep it up Uh you know and and i mean it can just be uh, um a few words spoken at the appropriate moment when you see something like that or you know when when you see a woman who's standing up and and showing that masculine strength reinforce that and and you know give them a good pat on the back and it's i mean it's something that you can do every single day and just keep your eyes open for Mm -hmm. for behavior that you want to um commend and and reinforce so that it Mm -hmm. maybe he'll do that for someone else next time Mm mm-hmm so, well, yeah, and we the are all so important. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, typically, um, they would be chastised mm-hmm. for you know, yeah, for for being uh, you know wimpy or you know spineless or something like that. Right. <laughs> you know, it's great strength in in compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, and and men have kind of been cheated in in a lot of ways because of that. Um, but I just got into our little chat here, and I forgot to um, just say to the audience, if you have a question for Stephanie and you are already on the switchboard, just press 1 on your keypad so that we know you want to ask a question. If you're listening on the computer, excuse me, if you're listening on the computer, then just pick up the phone and dial 917 917- Eight eight nine, eight two nine two, and then once you're in, press one, and uh, our producers will get you um, set to come on and ask your question. And we have we have a few minutes for that to uh, take place here, but um, want to continue um, with our conversation. 
Mm-hmm. So um, let's see. What else can we talk about? Um, well, it, I just wanted to, to share that when, when you were talking about, you know, the kind of the patriarchal programming and those sorts of things, I actually address a lot of that in the book. In fact, one of my chapters um, is called Stop Trying to Get Back into the Garden, <laughs> um, you know, where I talk about the, <laughs> you know, like the, the programming of what it, you know, what it means to be, quote, a good person and, you know, kind of the influence of the patriarchy and all of those things. And um, to me, all of that is really relevant in this greater context. Well, yeah, and when you say, you know, people trying to get back into the garden, it's like using that um, to address the the way it's all been? Well, the Garden of Eden, you know, kind of the, the Christian mythology and, um, uh, you know, a lot of different traditions that, that have a, a similar mythology and how that has led us astray um, and how that directly plays into our, you know, that service does not have to equal sacrifice. And, you know, I I explore some of the archetypes of the martyr and the slave and the knight and, you know, those sorts of things that are relevant right now playing out in modern culture, you know, to, to kind of create a framework of, why this consciousness practice is so important and and why it's so difficult to embrace these this highly feminine set of qualities that we carry as an empath and why we have all of this um, programming that tells us that self-care is selfish and that the reward is really about, you know, that, that we wear depletion and exhaustion as a badge of honor. Oh, oh gosh, you're so right. You're so right. And I, and I really um, think that there has been a lot of, of this programming through organized religion. And I mean, I was, I was raised Christian and, and it just, I mean, it starts in Sunday school that, mm-hmm. you know, and that, then the thing is that if you, if you suffer and you suffer to serve, you know, that makes you holy like Jesus. And and that's I was so glad to hear you say that because we can be of service without sacrifice, without um, self-deprecation, without um, self-denial. Mm-hmm. You, if you really really want to be of service, be brilliant, be whole, you know. But mm-hmm. you know if you're limping, if you're limping and starving because you've been a doormat for everybody, really, what kind of service are you giving? <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, and and I actually, you know, kind of reference that, um, you know, we just have this. If if we really break down that mythology, at least the way it's been taught to most of us, there are so many holes in it. It's like, okay, so we we have a god that 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 we're supposed to do everything we can to, to be like him and to be of service and to keep ourselves clean and holy. But at the same time, we're told we're never going to make it. We're never going to measure up. It's, it's a worthless effort. And, and it's like, why would somebody set 
doesn't sound like a loving God to me. You know, let me let me build you with with yeah. faults and and you know just yeah. And that, and it's, then, that's all. Know, it's all a contrivance. It. It's a contrivance mm-hmm. of mankind. Mm-hmm. And and misinterpretation mm-hmm. of totally. of ancient you know stories. Um, yes. And and certainly yeah. I mean, an organized religion wants people to think that the only way to you know to ascend is through them hooking mm-hmm. you up with you know the big man with the white beard. And it's just it's it's like they might as well be talking about Santa Claus. They're just mm-hmm. kind of similar. <laughs> and it, it, when rather than as Jesus came here to tell us, we have the divine within us. We are yeah. all God, and and we have power. And He said you can do these things. All of His miracles, you can do this too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, then it all got you know twisted because the powers at the time didn't want the people to become powerful. You've got to keep them right. subservient in line and keep paying those dues. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, oh, I could, <laughs> I kind of worked up about that. <laughs> this is a passionate subject for you. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, mm-hmm. it's just, it's such a, a global yeah. thing. And it's not just Christianity. Just about mm-hmm. every religion um, that, and I don't, I admit, I don't, haven't studied all religions, but there has to. It seems to be this thing that you are lesser and he is greater. Right, right. And, and that's insidious. You know, it is. Yeah. It, it's so built into the collective consciousness and our programming still that a lot of times when you start talking about it, people are like, "What? What are you talking?" You know, because it's just so cleverly woven in <laughs> from the beginning. Well, you don't even they've, been at it. they've been at it for thousands of years, so they've mm-hmm. really got the 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 um, the, the sales pitch. They've really got mm-hmm. it down, and and um, and truly, every religion has something of value, but no religion mm-hmm. has everything of value. Yeah, yeah, and I just so, have a great difficulty believing that there is only one way. I, I am not a there's only one way kind of person. No, there's, you know, a, there's just many ways of the right people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But like, like, you know, Lavendar has a way of boiling things down to the most ultimate simplicity and truth. That there's mm-hmm. only two energies. There's only two energies, up spiral, alive and living, and down spiral, death and dying. And there's nothing else. Everything falls into those two categories. And right now we are, you know, as, as star seeds, as empaths, as sensitives, as, uh, you know, metaphysical, um, spiritual kind of people, we are trying to expand, you know, the light and the, the alive and living um, large enough to turn the tide mm-hmm. so, that, that, so it's not a planet of... Um, of horrors, <laughs> you know. It, there's beauty. Mm-hmm. There's such beauty all around us. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and it really it, is a remembering, you know, in this in this ascension, remembering what we once were and what we can be again. Right. Well, I am just. I'm so pleased that that you are on the planet with us at this time, mm-hmm. and it, helping the people that 
are here to help others, but they've got to wake up first and, and learn how to help themselves. And then they can go out and help others. So, you know, you are, you're basically training leaders. And that's mm-hmm. a wonderful thing. Thank you for that. Well, it's 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 just great what you're doing, and and helping you know um, people understand that you know being empathic can be a blessing if you understand the bigger picture and and your place in it, where you don't yeah. have to um, you don't have to be a martyr, and you don't have mm-hmm. to you don't have to be at the mercy. Of, of energies around you, and and if people listening to this show um, understand that if you're different, I say congratulations, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? because what is passing for normal on this planet just scares mm-hmm. the dickens out of me, mm-hmm. and um, you know so pursue and discover um, and go to Stephanie's website bluestartemple.org. And pick up a copy of her book, and you've got um, all kinds of tools, um, uh, guided medication, uh, medication, <laughs> meditations. <laughs> and, it's the uh, elevated version of medication. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. The meditation is a type of medication um, if you're if you're using it properly. Um, but you've got products and programs and classes, mm-hmm. and um, and this is your first book, correct? It is, but it is not the last. And I and I just want to mention it actually hits shelves on November fifth. It is available for pre order, so just you know, three short weeks you can have a copy in your hands. Oh, excellent. Well this is this is great timing. So mm-hmm. um I I really appreciate your um rearranging your schedule to be with us tonight and um it's just been delightful to talk to you and I'm so glad that that you are doing what you do because it is so needed. Thank you, and I, I appreciate the opportunity. Well, okay, and certainly, um, you know, if you have you if you have another book that's coming out, please let us know. We'd love to have you back on to talk about the next one. Awesome, thank you. Okay. Okay, well, Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us tonight, and um, we will be back next week. And until then, remember to make a conscious effort to find gratitude and give compassion every single day. Good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 